Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? <laughs> All right. See what I'm dealing with here. If you have a Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 3 is where I'd like for you to start. We are going to be digging into 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. I want you to find 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, and you can find 1 Timothy 3 on pages 992 or 779 of the Bibles that are provided for you in the seat in front of you. I think you'd be helped if you don't have a Bible to use that Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep that Bible as our gift to you. Maybe you have been invited by a friend, you are not yet a Christian, you're investigating what it means to trust in Christ. We think a great way for you to do that would be to read the Bible, to gather with Christians who believe it completely. So we invite you to come back, take that Bible as our gift to, your, for our gift to you. And even if you're a Christian, rather than relying on the words on the screen, which we have just for convenience sake, or people that are newer to the faith or unfamiliar with the Bible, we think it'd be helpful for you to have your Bible open on your lap, working through the text that we're going to look at today. We have been in a series in the beginning of 2015 looking at how the gospel should affect the culture and the life of Crosspoint. We have creatively titled it Gospel Culture. Uh, and we are spending these few weeks doing this. At the beginning of the year, we looked at how the gospel is meant to disrupt our lives and to turn our hearts and our minds upside down and for us to fall in love with Jesus and to obey him as our good and gracious and sovereign king. Last week, we looked at how the gospel then is to be lived in the local church, is to be put on display and that when a local church lives in the way that the Bible calls us, we not only disciple one another and edify one another, but we simultaneously become a witness to an onlooking world. So evangelism and discipleship are not two things that are pitted against one another, but they find their beautiful harmony as a church displays the beauty of Christ to an onlooking world. This morning we want to look at the issue of the leaders of the church and how they are called to defend the gospel in a world that is contrary and opposed to the gospel. Next week, David Baum will be preaching on Fountain City Church, which, praise God, will be launching here in the coming weeks. And then we'll finish up one more message in this series on the gospel deployed and missions and how we want to send out the gospel as a local church on our missions weekend. And then in February... We'll get back into Genesis, and we left off, if you remember, last year at Genesis 27. So we're going to pick back up in Genesis 28 and work our way through the end of Genesis for the balance of the spring. So that's where we are going for the next few weeks. This morning we find ourselves in, in these letters from Paul. I'm going to start in Hebrews chapter 13. So you stay in 1 Timothy 3, because we're going to go there in just a moment and read, and then in Titus chapter 1 and read. But I'm going to start as our, as our kind of jumping off point by looking at a very important single verse, Hebrews chapter 13. Now here's the point of today. I have a very acute sense of smell. You can ask anybody in my family. Uh, for the past few weeks, a little mouse found lodging in the engine compartment of my car. And he built a nest in the little 
air filter in the cabin. I knew he was in there on day one because I could smell him. Uh, My wife and children have a cat. And... I can smell that cat sometimes. Let's just leave it at that. Several years ago, at the beginning of Crosspoint, we had a leadership team meeting, and somebody burned a scented candle. My nose is so fragile and sensitive that in the 30 minutes that I was presenting to that team meeting, I sneezed, and I am not exaggerating, 75 times. I have an acute sense of smell. I pray that today, we as a congregation develop an even better sense of smell for what an elder is and what their role is so that we as a church would be better at identifying elders so that elders then can help us as a church defend the gospel and help us to better display the gospel to an onlooking world. Let me read Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go to 1 Timothy 3. The writer of Hebrews is wrapping up. This is the context of Hebrews 13. It's a beautiful book that we'll, someday we'll work through. The context of Hebrews is that the writer is encouraging Jewish Christians who have accepted Christ as Messiah from they've been Jews and now they're trusting in Jesus. And because of the threat of persecution and the difficulty that they're facing in their context, they are thinking about going back to the old covenant. And the writer of Hebrews is encouraging them that Jesus is better. He is the fulfillment of all of these promises in the Old Testament and pictures in the Old Testament. And in chapter 13, he's basically saying goodbye and wrapping up and giving a few final words and exhortations. And in verse 17, he says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, confessing what Moses said hundreds and hundreds of years ago, that you have been our dwelling place through all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth of the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So in light of that, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Satisfy us this morning with your word. Stir the affections of believers in this room and help us be a better display of your glory to an onlooking world, to a church, as a church. And I pray by your sovereign grace, that those that are not yet trusting in Christ that are gathered with us this morning, that you would give them a new heart, new eyes, open ears to believe and see and hear and trust in Jesus, to pass from death to life 
And we know that as we have sung and read this morning, that is only because of your grace. We pray that you do these things for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So the question is today, what is an elder? Who leads the church? What is the role of these elders? Now I realize that this won't feel like one of those messages that will help you you know, live out your faith better on Thursday morning when you have a difficult situation that you're facing. But I would submit to you that if we understand this issue of the church recognizing and choosing and following the leadership of qualified men, that as these men then fulfill their biblical role and lay down their life for the sheep as under shepherds, mirroring the great shepherd that Robert read about in John 10, nothing could be more applicable and helpful to our life as a church than this. So, what is an elder and what is his role? Before we read in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, I think it will be helpful for us to just sort of orient ourselves on a few things that an elder is not before we read about what an elder is. So a couple things. We're not going to have, just tick them off, not on the screen. But an elder is not simply or merely an older man. Although he may be, and I think it's helpful if he is, because he's got more experience and he knows what it's like to have life beat against his soul. But when we use this word elder in English, it's being translated from a Greek word that doesn't necessarily mean chronological age. An elder is not simply, or a leader of the church is not simply a, simp- a successful businessman. We're going to read of a list of qualifications, and none of them have to do with whether or not he's a prominent member in the broader community. He can be a successful businessman, but certainly we're not looking for people that meet that qualification necessarily. He's not a good old boy or a, a representative of a certain particular, you know, block or interest group within the congregation. So we're not looking for elders to be a representation of us because we want this to happen in the church. We want elders to be elders of the whole church and to meet the qualifications that we, we're about to read about. And an elder is not merely a very involved member of the church, although certainly he should be. But it's not just the guy who's around all the time. He needs to meet the qualifications of the scriptures that we'll read about in a moment. So let's read in 1 Timothy 3. Let me read 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. And then I'll flip over to Titus chapter 1 and I'll read verses 5 through 9. We're going to be in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus a lot this morning. Those three letters, often called the pastoral epistles, because they're Paul writing to Timothy on how pastors should lead the local church are very important, and we'll just kind of dig through those. So they're right next to each other. Let me read 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer, and by the way, this word overseer, an elder, and pastor, maybe some older uh, translations that you may have, use the word bishop, Don't have the time to make this case this morning, but those words, overseer, elder, pastor, really are interchangeable in the New Testament. Paul, in other places, and the other New Testament writers use those words interchangeably for different reasons, really speaking about the same role or office of the church, the office of elder, pastor, overseer. Therefore, an overseer, verse 2, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, 
self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So there's Paul's exhortation to Timothy about the characteristics of an elder. Flip two books over to Titus chapter 1, where Paul is going to give a very similar sounding list to another young leader in the church who is acting as Paul's representative, Titus, giving him a very similar set of characteristics that he should look for and that the church should look for in men who are overseers, elders, pastors. Titus 1 verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remain into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So for the balance of this morning, I want us to look at five thoughts, five aspects of who elders are and their role in the local church from these two lists that we read of the characteristics of elders. So, elders and their role. First, we see that elders are ordinary men. They're ordinary guys. They are part of the congregation. They are called to be shepherds of the sheep, but they are sheep themselves. In fact, they should smell like sheep. Their lives should intermingle with the rest of the church. They aren't removed. They, they're not on a, a, pe- a pedestal. They're not separated from. They are ordinary people. Noted New Testament scholar Don Carson, when writing commentaries and thoughts on these two lists in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, says that they are extraordinary because of their ordinariness. Did you notice that, that it didn't say that it needs to be you know, a great, orator, or he needs to be a a really savvy leader, or he needs to be strong, or 6'3", you know, 220, run a 4440 and bench press 300 pounds, or he needs to be particularly charismatic in any way. No, it just says that he needs to be a a good man who is an example to the flock. So elders are ordinary men. Notice also that A vast majority of the time, when elders are mentioned in the New Testament, it mentions them in the plural. So we think that the New Testament teaches that local churches, when they are large enough and able, should have more than one elder. 
The elders are plural, and that's the way it works out here at Crosspoint. Although I am the lead elder and the, the founding elder of this church, I don't have more authority than the other elders. We share leadership. We think that this protects the church from me, and it also protects me from the church, right, as the lead pastor. And we think that's a helpful way to share the leadership that God entrusts to a congregation as it grows. And notice also that elders are ordinary men. Elders are men. Clearly, we believe that the scriptures teach that men and women are equal in value and essence before the Lord. That is without question. And to deny that teaching, I think, is to completely misunderstand the image of God that every person, male and female, is created with. But we believe and see clearly in the scriptures that, as we'll see in just a moment, that the, the role of an elder is, is primarily to deliver God's word to God's people. And it is a teaching role. And the scriptures clearly tell us that God has given an order in creation and in the church whereby men should be the leaders and the teachers, not only in their home, but also in the church. And so in 1 Timothy 2, just before he gives this qualification of elders, in the context of life in the local church, Paul speaks about the relationship between men and women in the church and whether or not women should serve the church by teaching in this authoritative way that elders do and are called to, as we'll see in a moment. So he says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So a couple things here. I don't think that that means that women need to be completely quiet in church, like women can't speak or read scripture or pray or sing. I think that this type of speech that Paul has in mind there when he is exhorting women to be quiet is that they are not to speak in a way that, that is reserved for the elders of the church who are to teach and preach the gospel and good doctrine before a mixed audience. Now, some people uh, argue with this and say that Paul's admonition to Timothy here, who's the pastor at this time of the church in Ephesus, was just a sort of specific contextual admonition to that church because that church had a whole bunch of problems and had women that were coming out of that Ephesian pagan culture that we read about a couple weeks ago in Acts chapter 19. Remember they were worshiping this goddess Diana and it was, it was a, a, just a whole bunch of, of, of a carnality going on in that church. And so some people think that this is merely bound to that particular church and that it doesn't have broad application across the centuries to the church of God. But I think that if we read the next verse, we see that Paul is not basing his admonition for this type of relationship, for the teaching, the authoritative teaching of the church to be only something that men do, in particular elders. But he's saying that this is part of God's design for creation. So let's read verse 13. He says, and this is the basis of why he says women should not preach and teach and be elders in the church. Verse 13, because, or for, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Then Eve. So Paul's logic, his grounding for this order, this complementary role between men and women in the church is not because of any current situation in Ephesus or in America or in Columbus, Georgia, but it's even before the fall. It's rooted in the way God made men and women. He made women, he made men first to lead and protect and serve. 
and he made women second to help to encourage and nourish. And so there's this order we see in the church. So elders are ordinary men. And by the way, just to, I always like to throw this in because I realize the world we live in. Uh, this idea of this role of elder being reserved for men is in no way meant to subjugate women in any way. This isn't hierarchical, you know, authoritarianism. When men truly understand this, and they understand their responsibility not only in the church, but in the home, so I think this has application in the home as well, I think when a man is leading in the way that God intends him to lead as a Christ-like shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, whether it's in the home or in the church, that doesn't subjugate femininity. It actually exalts it and frees it to be all that it's truly intended to be. So men, if you think this is admonition for, or this is license for you to domineer over your wife, brother, you are sinfully wrong. And women, if you think this is in any way some sort of old, uh, primitive mindset that somehow lowers women, oh, dear sister, I would encourage you to realize that in other parts of the Scripture, Paul actually, in 1 Corinthians 11, in fact, he says that just as the, 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 the Christ is the head of us, and he says that God the Father is the head of Christ, just like the husband is the head of the wife. So, dear sister... In this complementary relationship between men and women, you, your husband being your head, and men being the leaders of the church as the elders, he is comparing you, the analogy is to Christ. There's nothing more beautiful than to be compared to the complementary relationship of the Trinity. God, Christ, men leading, women serving. Praise God for that. So elders are ordinary men, or we could go on. Second thought about how elders serve the church. Elders are good examples of what it means to follow Jesus. So this flows from just ordinary men. Notice the characteristics. Did you see? It wasn't anything particularly, you know, flashy there. Let's work through that list again in 1 Timothy 3. He needs to aspire. There needs to be a desire, a sense that, yes, God would have me serve and bless the church in this way. He needs to be above reproach. It's not perfect in any way necessarily. Obviously, no man is, but he's above reproach. He's the husband of one wife. What does that mean? I think it means that he's a one-woman type of man. He has his sexual life in order. He's not the type of guy that is a flirt. He doesn't have a trail of broken marriages in his past. He's not the type of guy that struggles with pornography. He's got his heart and his eyes, and all of his sexuality, if he's married, is focused on his wife. He's sober-minded. He's self-controlled. He's respectable. He's hospitable. He doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't get angry easily. Again, no, even as I'm reading this, I'm getting convicted. Like, oh, no man does these things perfectly. But these are things that, over the long haul, mark his life. He's able to teach. He's not a drunkard. He's not violent, but gentle. He's not quarrelsome. He's not a lover of money. He manages his own household well. His children are submissive. He's not a new convert. So again, notice that these are, these are just examples. In a sense, really, we want all men in the church to aspire to these character traits. So elders are good examples of what it means to follow Jesus, with the exception of one qualification that Paul lists there in 
1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 that may not necessarily be something that all men in the church have as a gift, and it is. The second one, or the third, the third thing that we want to think about is that elders know God's word and are able to teach it. Elders know God's word. You can put the next one up there. Elders know God's word and are able to teach it. So let's look again at 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. It says there that he is able to teach. He has this gifting that God has given him that he can explain the Bible to Christians or unbelievers to do them good spiritually. In Titus chapter 1, verse 9, it says that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So let's think about this idea of what it means for an elder, leader of the church, that he must know God's word and he must be able to teach it. Now, I don't think that this necessarily means that every man who is an elder in a church, specifically at Crosspoint, needs to necessarily be the type of man who has the gifting to effectively get up Sunday after Sunday and preach in front of a a gathered congregation. But I do think it means that if need be, he could do that if he had to. But I think when we're looking at this idea of teach, I think it means that he needs to be the type of man who knows the Bible, who has a good understanding of the sovereignty of God and a good understanding of doctrine, and he is able to communicate it to people, whether it's a one-on-one discipling or whether it's in a small group or whether it's leading a community group or whatever, many different applications of this. But he is able to take the truth of God's word and in various settings deliver the content of God's word to other believers to do them good spiritually. And certainly God, I believe, gifts and equips certain elders to be particularly gifted in the communication of God's word and the doctrine and truth that flows out of it. So listen to these admonitions later on in 1 Timothy about how pastors, elders should lead and preach and teach the church. 1 Timothy 4, verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, I think these things we can sum up as saying the truth, the gospel, and all the doctrine that flows out of it, You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you follow. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Verse 9, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Listen to this. For to this end we toil and strive. This is the, the, the toiling and striving that elders should be a part of. Because we have set our hope, we have, we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So the toil of an elder is to teach this that Jesus is the Savior. He is the only hope. These men need to have a fierce and clear understanding of the good news and how people who are dead in their sins are made right with a holy God simply and only because of the work of Jesus on the cross. They need to know that and they need to be able to apply that to every aspect of life. Verse 11. 
command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech. Now, that doesn't mean that all elders need to be young. He's just speaking to Timothy here in that context because he was particularly young, saying don't be uh, nervous about your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct in love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Verse 16, listen to this. I think this is a great summary of the responsibility and the primary role of pastors, elders, overseers in the local church. Keep a close watch on yourself. In other words, live a life in accord with the gospel that you preach. So keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. So know what you're talking about. Know what the Bible says. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So what Paul is saying to Timothy and what the Holy Spirit is saying to us is that elders and what the church needs but from their elders is the Word of God and them teaching it. So the elders' primary responsibility is not to be full of charisma or the guy that everybody likes necessarily, but to deliver God's Word to God's people. Now, it's helpful if he's got a little bit of charisma and he's all, you know, he's not like a, just an absolute, you know, sandpaper to be around. But the primary role of the elder pastor overseer is to deliver God's word to God's people. Listen to what William Still. Remember William Still, the Scottish pastor back in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s? I quoted him to you last week, that beautiful quote about how we should live together and we should have great you know, mercy for the odd bods among us because we're all odd bods. Well, I'm reading his book, The Work of the Pastor. It's a classic. It's short. If you're a young man aspiring to ministry, you should read it. Listen to what William Still says about this responsibility of the pastor, overseer, elder to teach God's word. He says, The pastor is called to feed the sheep, even if the sheep do not want to be fed. He is certainly not to become an entertainer of goats. Let goats entertain goats, and let them do it out in goat land. <laughs> I love this guy. I want to meet him in heaven someday. Like, bro, that was... That was a really good sentence right there. <laughs> you will certainly not turn goats into sheep by pandering to their goatishness. Do we really believe that the Word of God, by His Spirit, changes as well as maddens men? If we do, to be evangelists and pastors... I would add elders, overseers, all that synonymous. Feeders of the sheep, we must be men of the word of God. So I hope you have an appetite for that. Now, I think you do in these past 10 years. We want you to have an appetite. We want you to have a craving. In fact, we want you to demand the word of God from your pastors and elders. And if we ever stray from it and give you goatish little tendencies on how to be a better goat in goat land, you should go somewhere else. Elders should know God's word and should be able to teach it in some context. Some, I think, are particularly gifted to teach it Sunday after Sunday. And all elders, regardless, should be able to explain it 
in various settings and do believers good. Fourthly, elders lead the church. And their leading of the church comes from their delivering of God's word. The authority that the elders have in the church doesn't rest with themselves and in themselves or because of the force of their personality or their charisma, although if they have giftedness in those areas, it's fine. But their leadership of the church is bound up in the authority of the word of God that they are giving to God's people. So 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So I want you to see the connection there between the, the leadership. Paul uses the word ruling, the governing of the church that the elders are to do, is bound up in as much as they are extolling and explaining and lifting up and commanding and teaching and exhorting God's people to follow God's word. So it's not, a, it's not a sort of soft, you know, kind of, well, this is just, we need, as Paul says, to be able to stand up and say, this is God's word. We should believe it. This is what the truth is. I don't care what the world says. I don't care what our anxious hearts say. We must trust in Christ. So yes, elders need to be humble, but in our culture, humility sometimes manifests itself as a sort of self-absorbedness where we don't want to ever say anything definitively. So have you noticed that sometimes people just speak in a way that they're trying to, they're trying to make it palatable, and so they just sort of, it's like a suggestion, like, well, I mean, I mean, this is what the Bible, no, men of God who are called to deliver God's word to God's people should be able to stand up and say, this is what God's word says, we should follow it. Remember a couple years ago, somebody told me about a particular difficult doctrine that I was preaching on. They said, Brad, I believe it, but I just don't think you should preach it because it's too controversial. And I said, oh, dear brother, I mean, where would that leave us? Where would that leave us in this culture if we had that stance towards sexuality and gender issues? Friends, we are going to face that. There may come a day very soon when, and I, I'm not one of these, the sky is falling chicken little. I am an extreme optimist. I, 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 I believe in the utter and complete and absolute sovereignty of God. I've read the end of the book. It all turns out awesome. But I think there could be coming a day very shortly in our lifetime, maybe even in the years or decades to come, where church life as we know it in America will cease to exist. And just the clear articulation of historic biblical truth will be persecuted by our government. It is, to some degree, already happening. And men need to be, who are elders and leaders of the church, need to be fierce and strong and need to, as William still said, really believe it and know that it will draw some men and it will madden others. But they believe it and they're able to deliver it to God's people. And then finally, elders guard the church. They guard the church from a world that wants to destroy the church. We don't live in a neutral society. Listen to Paul's admonition to the elders in the church at Ephesus. Remember what we read about two weeks ago in Acts 19? I mean, he 
brought the gospel to Ephesus, turned it upside down. People were burning books and magic books and idols, and people were going crazy. And then these elders were left to sort of shepherd that revival and that chaos that happened. And then Paul's on his way out to continue his missionary journey. And this is what he says to the Ephesian elders as they're then tasked with bringing the gospel to bear on a hostile culture. Acts 20, verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. So he says that wolves will come. Wolves are upon us. Wolves are at the gate. They always have been. But oftentimes, wolves don't announce themselves as wolves. It's not like the society says, hey, you know what? We have a spiritual agenda to destroy the church and everything that it stands for. They sneak in, and these little deceptive philosophies, as Paul writes in Colossians, start to take hold of the church to say, you know what? Jesus is just one way, or you can live this way, or maybe God did this, and you know, it's okay to be married this way, and all that kind of stuff, and yeah, it's a, and those things creep in as wolves, where one generation assumes the gospel, and the next generation loses it, because they don't have fierce, humble, strong shepherds beat back the wolves at the gate and to, if necessary, lay down their own lives for the sake of the sheep. Friends, who is sufficient for these things? I want to do two things. I want to simultaneously hold up a high biblical picture of what it means to be an elder, but then I also want to look at my own life and not present myself as a perfect picture. Any of the current elders that we have in our church to be a perfect picture of this. Friends, we realize that these are things that no man can live up to. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, who is sufficient for these things? None of us. But I want us to develop a nose for men among our congregation who could and are called and should serve the church in this way. So here are a few questions, not on the screen, just for you to think about, roll through real quickly, and then we have some folks that are coming to be baptized. Some questions from Mark Devere, a pastor in Capitol Hill Baptist Church that has written books on these things and has a list of some things that I think would be very helpful for you to think about. A few questions for the congregation to think about who might be men among us that could be more elders. As our church has grown, Crosspoint, we need more elders. We need more elders. Devere writes these things. Does he evidence a love for God and for the church by faithfully prioritizing gathering with the church? Does he contribute to the overall health of the church by the way he treats and speaks with others? Does he use his words to build up by pointing out evidences of God's grace in others? Or does he tear them down by constant criticism? Does he meet with young or struggling Christians to do them good spiritually? Does he watch out for the spiritual lives of other people? Does he pray for the church and its members regularly? Is he able to share the, share the gospel clearly with unbelievers? And he, does he try and do that in different spheres of his life? Is he an influence for division or for unity? Does he exercise godly wisdom that is first pure, then peaceable and gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy? Does he show humility by being easy to correct, or is he pridefully entrenched in his own opinions? In short, does he 
albeit not perfectly, but consistently, set an example for others in the church in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Uh, We have many men like that. And I pray that over the decades to come, we would have many men like that serve our church. Elders, pastors, shepherds, who teach, clarify, defend the gospel, who serve, lead, and encourage the sheep to follow Jesus and exalt him so that the world can see Jesus and respond to him. And maybe you need to do that even today. Maybe you need to know what the gospel is, what the role of the elders to teach is, what, what, what the content of what their teaching should be. And it is clearly this. It is this, dear friend. It is that you are dead in your sin by your natural birth. And you must be born again spiritually. Your rebellion against God, whether it's obvious in public or whether it's internal and self-righteous moralism, has, like every other human being, separated you from God. And because you are separated in your sin from an infinitely holy God, there is nothing that you can do in and of yourself to save him. In fact, the Bible says that your sin has rendered you spiritually dead, unable to do anything to repair your condition. But God, in his infinite kindness and mercy, has not left humanity in that helpless state, but has come to us in the form of Jesus, his son, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal God made man. And in his eternal godness, he takes on human flesh and he bears our likeness, but he does it perfectly. Where we have rebelled and refused God's leading in law and beauty and satisfaction, Jesus completely obeys and submits to it. And he lives a perfect human life. And then he lays down that perfect human life on the cross to be a sacrifice for us. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a human for human sin. A real human who, bear, who lays his life down and bears the wrath for all men, all women, all boys, all girls from every tribe, tribe and every tongue and every nation that will ever turn from trusting in themselves and will turn from the rebellion and will trust in him. And those that he is making alive, he gives the very thing that he commands to them and he makes them alive. He wakes them up just like he woke up Lazarus from the grave and he calls them from death to life. And he may be doing that for you right now, friend. You need not recite a prayer, fill out a card, memorize anything. You need to look away from yourself and look to Jesus who alone can save and then who will lead you in ever increasing joy and satisfaction forever and ever and ever. The Bible calls that repentance and faith. And those are gifts that he gives to his people. Is he giving it to you now? The gift to turn away from trusting in yourself? The gift of faith to not understand completely, but to put your hope in Jesus who died and then rose again in victory. And now because he is alive, absorbing and extinguishing and satisfying the wrath of a holy God, he now has satisfied it and now he's alive and he can give life because he's the king of life. You must put your faith in him. You must. It is your only hope. Do that even now. In just a moment, we're having four members from Crosspoint come and proclaim this very gospel. It has hit their lives, and they're proclaiming it to the world and to their church, and we will see it displayed. Let me pray. And if you are being baptized or reading a testimony, you can come and prepare to do that now. Well, Lord, as we 
come see the gospel extolled and lifted up. May we have a congregation that knows what elders should smell like. And may you give us many men through the decades that would aspire to this office, that would be equipped to lead the church in this way, and who would not be exalted over the congregation, but would humble themselves underneath the congregation so the congregation is protected by and can stand on their leadership as they deliver the word of God to God's people. For the glory of your name, for the joy of your people, do these things, I pray. And I pray that we would exalt the name of Jesus and see your beauty as we see our four friends be baptized this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.